Um, I want to say also during the first, during the four Sundays in Advent, as most all of you know, probably all of you know, we are, uh, are taking five, four familiar Christmas hymns. We'll take one on Christmas Eve as well. Letting these themes uh, really direct our hearts to God's Word. Uh, I, I said last week we have a hymnal in one hand, a Bible in another, and let our, let our hymnal shed light and bring us into portions of the Scripture where we need to go. Uh, I've chosen hymns strategically popular enough that you might hear them uh, as you're walking around the stores or in the malls or in the radio or, or whatever. Um, theologically rich enough to direct our hearts towards God's Word. And, you know, last week... We spent our Sunday morning going through O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I heard several of you this past week uh, just come up to me and say, or email and just say, hey, guess what song we sang, or guess what song we're going to sing. Or, and it was Emmanuel, and I, I trust that, that God used my, my time last week to, to help that be more meaningful, even this morning. So we looked at, uh, do I have a hymnal up here? I, I do. Hymn number 259 just even uh, speaks about angels from the realm of glory speaks about the desire of nations as well. I'm not sure if you picked that up, but just last week I talked about the desire of nations from Haggai that, that will come into the temple and the glory will be greater than the first glory of the Solomonic temple. And just make, make Christmas more meaningful is kind of our, of our aim here. And this morning, we come to one of our most famous hymns, most loved hymns of all Christmas hymns, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So you can take your hymnal and open it up to hymn number 277. Hymn number 277, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And it's a, it's a well-known song, sung across our land by, by many people. Um, the hymn appears at, at what I would call one of the most famous movies ever. One of my most beloved movies, It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you know that movie? All the adults, the kids. You know that movie? Ruthie, have you seen that movie yet? No, you haven't. Eva, have you seen that movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, the theology is not really good, but the story is, is really good, all right? And, um, you know, you know that movie, right? George Bailey sacrificed much of his life. He stayed in Bedford Falls. His, his brother goes away and becomes an army hero, but he just stays in Bedford Falls at the old building and loan. And he wanted to see the world, but he, he stayed behind. And, and at one point, a financial crisis came. He contemplated jumping from the bridge and committing suicide and and then he had an opportunity to think and see what his life was like if he had not ever been born. And he realized his life indeed was worth living. And the last scene, you remember how it shows just love poured upon him as he's contemplating suicide. And then he comes back home. He, he finds his wife is still there and, and she's gathered all her friends saying, hey, George is in financial trouble. George is in trouble. And people just pour out their generosity. In fact, I just want to. I want to show you that scene here, if we can pull that up here. Rachel, you guys have seen this many times before. Let's just cry again. That's <laughs> what I, I do every time I see it. Quiet, quiet. Now get this. It's from London. Oh. Mr. Gower cabled you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright.
moved through all the way up here in a blizzard. Oh, hurry up. I'm from Bamford in New York. Oh, I left right in the middle of it. As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. It's post. <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs> it stirs up emotions in me every time just to see the, the blessedness of a light. But you, you saw the song they sang, right? Hark. The Herald Angels Sing. It just is a, is a Christmas song that are, are sung in many ways. This hymn was written by Charles Wesley. If you take hymn number 277, you look down there at the bottom, it says text Charles Wesley. Uh, he's no stranger to our hymnal. In fact, 16 of his hymns have made it into our hymnal more than anybody else. It's even more than Isaac Watts. I think Isaac Watts runs a, a close second. Um, we'll look at one of his hymns next week, Joy to the World. Some of the other hymns, O oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, and can it be that I should gain, Christ the Lord is risen today. And these 16 are only a portion of his 6,000 that he wrote during his life. But notice the byline here, it says, Charles Wesley altered. It means that Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, but it was changed a little bit. And it was changed by someone else. And, and we happen to know who that someone else was who changes him. His name is George Whitfield. He's a good friend. A good friend who went to Oxford together. We're studying from the ministry. They're members of the Holy Club, which John and Charles Wesley began in 1729. And the, the Holy Club was basically an accountability group in which these men at Oxford were seeking holiness in their lives. And they asked themselves 22 questions on a daily basis just to stir their hearts Godward. And then they would meet together and encourage one another in that process. They say, how's it going? I'm not going to read all 22 of them, but I'm just going to read a few of them. Am I honest in all my acts and words or do I exaggerate? Can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress, friends, or work habits? Did the Bible live in me today? Did I give the Bible time to speak to me this day? Am I enjoying prayer? Do I pray about the money I spend? Did I go to bed on time and get up at time? Did I, do I disobey God in anything? Am I proud? Do I thank God that I am not like other people, especially as the Pharisees who despise the publican? Do I grumble or complain constantly? Is Christ real to me? These are just a few of these questions. And, and uh, George Whitfield and Charles Wesley and John Wesley and, and, and others were in this group just seeking the Lord in, in, in all these ways. But you know what? It didn't help John and Charles Wesley too much because neither of them were saved at the time. Particularly Charles pursuing a righteousness through his own effort rather than through faith in Christ. It was more than a decade later he came to Christ. And a turning point, perhaps you know the story, was when he and John were on a ship making an evangelistic journey over to the Indians in America. And uh, on that ship, they had a tremendous storm. And they were very fearful and, and frightened. And in contrast to the Wesley, the Wesley brothers, and the English in general, were these Moravians from Germany, these, these faithful Christians who experienced the same storm but reacted differently than the Wesley brothers. Charles described the scene. He says, In the midst of their psalm singing, wherewith their service, to talk about the Moravians, began, the sea broke over, spilt the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship and poured in between the decks. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Moravians looked up 
and without intermission calmly sang on. And I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? And he said, thank God, no. These godly people were ready to die. But Charles Wesley wasn't. And that made a big impact upon him. They, they went in this evangelistic crusade among the Indians, largely unsuccessful. They went back and went, went back to England. They looked up the Moravians. And particularly, they pursued a relationship with the Moravian leaders. And one man, Peter Bowler, was one of the leaders. He, he asked Charles, this is after the trip, and they came back. And, and he said, Charles, do you hope to be saved? And I do, came the reply. What reason do you hope? And listen to what Charles Wesley said. Because I have used my best endeavors to serve God. I'm trying my best. And how many in America have asked their theology? Well, I'm just trying my best. Well, that was the state of his soul, not trusting in his religious zeal rather than in the finished work of Christ. And that was the thrust really of the Holy Club, pursuing zeal for Christ with or without faith in Christ. And that, that leads you to perdition. That leads you to a lost state. Romans 10.1 Paul said that I have a zeal for God, they, by Israel, they have a zeal for God, but they do so in a way that's establishing their own righteousness, not trusting in the righteousness of Christ. There's a few years later that Charles Wesley, 1738, came to faith, full assurance of faith, after a night of Bible reading or a long evening of Bible reading, about midnight or so, he says, at midnight I gave myself to Christ, assured that I was safe, whether sleeping or walking. I found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in hope of loving Christ. I saw that by faith, faith I stood. It's by faith you stand, not by your religious zeal. And, and he promptly, as was his habit, he, he wrote a hymn to commemorate that day. And probably, we don't know for sure, it's probably, and can it be, that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. The third stanza of our hymnal says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Just, just trusting in Christ and in the wonders of can it possibly be that I should gain an interest in His blood. And Charles Wesley never got over that day. Eleven years later, on his anniversary of his conversion, he wrote these words, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. He wanted a thousand tongues to sing of the triumphal grace of God, which had come through into his life. That's the cry of a converted man. But I, I digress. We're looking at Charles Wesley and his friend George Whitfield. We're looking at this line that says, text, Charles Wesley altered. Now, George Whitfield, of course, is a great evangelist uh, during the, the Great Awakening in uh, America. He made like, whatever, 13 trips across the sea, went to America six or seven times, actually died here. Um, I, I think in, in Georgia, and, and he, he was just one who was real savvy with people. He, he's one who could preach to, to thousands, had a big bellowing voice, and God used him in a great way. And um, he edited this text. He's the one that wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Charles Wesley had written something else. Does anyone know what Charles Wesley wrote? This is a story that goes around. Just totally new to all of you. Do you remember if I... Yeah, good. Hark how all the welkin rings. Glory to the King of Kings. Hark how all the... <laughs> how many of you know what a welkin is? 
Anyone? 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 All right, we're getting some new things today. Welcome. Well, neither did many of those in Whitfield's and Wesley's day. It's archaic to us. It's archaic to them as well. Shakespeare used this some 14 to 16 times in his plays. So it was around, that was a couple hundred, a hundred years before. Um, but it still wasn't really common. And so um, George Whitfield said, let's get something more common that people can understand and so he changed the world, the words to hark the herald angels sing, which resonate with the workers more than Welkin rings did. And in fact, it could be argued if Whitfield had made this change, then people wouldn't have caught on to this hymn, they wouldn't have sung it, and we still wouldn't have known what Welkin means because we never would have sung this song anyway. But anyway, Welkin means sky or heaven or the heavens or the expanse. And so Wesley was saying this first line, Behold, how the heavens and the universe and all the expanse of God's creation rings out with the coming of the King of Kings to earth. Now the idea is much the same about the angels singing, but the angels are only just a portion of what Charles Wesley was much bigger than that. Just, just all of the created order in the heavenly realms singing and, and praising God. You know, I don't think that Wesley really appreciated the change, even though it made him popular. Later, when Wesley combined his own hymns, so he, this was, uh, I, I forget the chronology, maybe 15, 20 years later, he, he, Wesley wrote this in this new compilation of hymns. He says, quote, Many gentlemen have done my brother and me, John and, and Charles, without naming us, the honor to reprint many of our hymns. Now, they are perfectly welcome to do so, provided they print them now just as they are. But I desire that they would not attempt to mend them, for they really are not able. None of them is able to mend them, either in sense or verse. Therefore, I must beg of them one of these two favors. Either let them stand just as they are to take them for better or for worse, or Add the true reading in the margin or at the bottom of the page that we may no longer be accountable either for the nonsense or for the doggerel of other men. I didn't know what doggerel meant, but doggerel just means like the, the clumsiness of words of how bad it would sound. He says, well, at least, at least know that that was your attempt at it and put us in the margin to show how good our attempt was is, is how he wrote back. I, I think George Whitfield was in the crosshairs of this comment. I think that... Uh, Wesley knew that when they appeared to the shepherds in the field, these angels did, announced the coming of the Messiah. They spoke with the shepherds. They didn't sing. Well, at least that's what the text says. George Whitfield had them singing. Well, let, let's turn. Let's turn to Luke chapter 2. It's, an, it's just an interesting sublight, uh, I guess. Luke chapter 2. This is the, the, um, the Christmas story. It's familiar to many of us. Maybe if you watch kids, you watch the Peanuts Christmas, you'll see Linus read this whole thing in whole. Um, maybe you'll read it in other occasions. Maybe your family will read this. Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth in the north, 
to Judea in the south, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. Thus will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Verse 13 says they're saying. They aren't singing. And we even get this sense here where it's the whole, the, the angels, and, and everything shown around them, just the glory here just rings forth the glory of the newborn king. Now, the angel singing is, is huge in our... In our culture, in our society, we, we sang it today. Angels from the realm of glory. Um, just even speaks there about the angels singing. Uh, it came upon a midnight clear. The angels are singing. And some make a big deal of this. Some say, oh, see, angels don't sing. I would say, don't. Well, hold your britches. It just, it just says here that the angels said this. But they were praising God. And they may well have been praising God in song. Some people say, well, angels don't sing. Well, I think the Bible just doesn't tell us they sing. Except there are a couple places, though, where we might infer it. Job 38, verse 7 speaks about the morning stars singing together. I think that's got reference to angels singing. Revelation 5, songs of praise fill the heavens. And I can't help but to think these angels, being intelligent beings, wouldn't join in as well. Um, but it is, a, it is a point here, particularly in this hymn, when they're coming and talking about this event here in Luke chapter 2, which this hymn does, the angels were talking. They weren't necessarily singing, but they were praising God. But it was true that the welkin was, was ringing out. Look again at verse 9, right? The angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. Verse 13, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. You just see the, just the vastness of the welkin coming and ringing. Glory to God in the highest and peace among men with whom He is pleased. It's the moment that heaven had been waiting for ever since Adam and Eve ate of that fruit. The moment heaven had been waiting for ever since God promised to Abraham that through you all the generations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the moment that heaven was waiting for when God made the promise to David that his descendant would sit upon the throne of David forever. Finally, God has sent the Messiah to redeem his people from their sins and all heaven knew that. And it was, as Charles Wesley said, hark how all the welkin rings Glory to the King of Kings. And, and then quoting just about peace, right? Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. There's, there's glory, but there's, there's peace coming to earth. was the idea of this hymn. It's not just about heaven rejoicing, however. Charles Wesley also, in this first stanza, calls us to join him. To join them as well. Look at the second half of the first stanza. 
right there where, where it says, um, joyful, all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. So we're, we're supposed to join. Here's my first point of application. Join the chorus. The, the, the welkin singing out, the welkin ringing out, and we're called in this, in this hymn just to join the chorus. The, the chorus of those going to Bethlehem. How appropriate that our second Advent candle here is about Bethlehem, going to Bethlehem. It, it is interesting. We get this nostalgic sense in singing some of these hymns about how we need to come to Bethlehem and see Christ the Lord, the newborn King. And, and in some sense... That's the call of Christmas is to get back there and be a shepherd right? and, and to be those who would come and see Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Because according to Micah 5, 2, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. It's mentioned here in Luke 2, verse 4, how Joseph went up from Galilee it's the north where he lived, from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, it's called Bethlehem. And again, in verse 11, it's mentioned, right? Today in the city of David. What's the city of David? The city of David, everyone knew that was, was Bethlehem. Has been born for your Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. We celebrate coming to Bethlehem. We, come, we celebrate the fact that the Messiah has come to us in this small little village. And I just say, this is, this is reason for, for great joy. It says there in verse 11 about how He's born a Savior for you. He's the one who's coming to save us. Sure, you know stories. You can think of stories in your mind about people being rescued. I want you to think a little bit about someone who was rescued. And I want you to think about the attitude of the person who is being rescued and what kind of attitude they had. It's utter joy, right, when the Savior comes. And there are a multitude of stories I could tell. I just want to tell a story that our family just looked on Friday. We went to a Midway Village Museum. And there was a big display there back in the... In the village, maybe some of you have been there, about this, this airplane, about Bert Fish Hazels. He was called Fish Hazel. Hazel, I don't even know. He's not your relative. H-A-S-S-E-L, Steve. It's not Hazel. But Hazel's attempt to fly from Rockford to Sweden. Now, this was in 1928 when the only way across the pond was by boat taken for months. But, but he figured, you know, if we go north a little bit, we could, we could go across Greenland and Iceland and, and maybe get down all the way to, to Sweden. And this would, would change everything. And so they're, they're trying this. They're planning on it. And so he and his co-pilot, Parker Shorty Kramer, took this twin-engine plane at a cruising altitude under 14,000 feet and went 100 miles an hour. And uh, with a, a plane that slow... Um, Though it couldn't fly straight across the Atlantic, if it flew up north, it could get there and provide the way for some air travel. And so they, they had this plan that they were going to go through Canada, through Greenland. They were going to uh, refuel in Ontario, Canada. They're going to refuel in Greenland, refuel in Iceland, and then make it on to Stockholm, Sweden. And so they prepared for that day, 1928. They boarded the plane and things went well on that first leg of the journey. They got to Canada in Ontario and they refueled and they're off on their way to Greenland. And the, the stop on Greenland was on the eastern border and they ran out of fuel. And so they made a, a, an emergency landing there in the ice frozen cap of Greenland out in the middle of nowhere. And they were stuck. And they hadn't really planned on surviving in the cold. So... 
the one coat was sort of adequate and the other coat really wasn't so adequate. So they even shared coats, especially at night at night. But they they started to walk across this this um, this frozen uh, landscape. No gloves, little equipment. They just had a, a, a gun or two, a few guns and some maps. The maps weren't good for anything except for maybe tinder to start a fire. They'd find any um, any form of life there, which they did. Sometimes they got to the tundra where there are little bushes around. They burned a little bit for some <clears throat> heat and signal. They had little food, 10 pounds of pemmican. I didn't know what pemmican was. So it's just fat and protein kind of mixed together. 10 pounds of food is all they had. And off they marked, walked. They marched for 14 days. They walked and walked and walked, trying to get to that coast. Facing adversity along the way. They're on these ice. And ice is like, you know, creeping. And they had to sometimes dodge crevices kind of opening up and for them. And they got to the place, had to pass over some icy streams, you know. So they took their clothes and put them up and crossed these icy streams. But the clothes got wet. And once they got wet, they never dried out. So they were cold all the time. And finally, they reached the shore, but there was hundreds of miles of shores where the, the fjord was there, and they had no idea where the refueling post was going to be. And so at last resort, they, they lit a fire. And uh, the fire went up, and nobody came. And about time when spirits are down and hope is lost, they heard the small engine <laughs> off in the distance, and a small boat came. Apparently, some Eskimo had had seen some fire and reported it to, you know, whatever, this European or American camp or whatever. And I just want you, can you imagine the feeling? After 14 days of walking with 10 pounds of food, you're probably hungry, you're cold, and then here you see the boat coming after you. What, what would your perspective be? Yes! Woohoo! We're going to be saved! We're going to live! We're not going to die of hypothermia out here. They once were lost, but now... They've been found, their Savior had come. And that's what's happening in Luke chapter 2. But it, Luke chapter 2 is on a, on a big scale. It, it's, not, it's not just a, a small scale about one person out in the, the wilderness someplace lost. This is a scale about the whole world. We are lost in sin and despair. There's no hope. And then verse 11 says that the Savior came, who is Christ the Lord. And so look at the response. There, there is joy and there is, there is worship. That's why I'm getting at this, right? Join the chorus, just like the, just like the shepherds did. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to them, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found the way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in a manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things that were told by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things in her heart, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. So the, the, the shepherds went away with excitement and, and praise and glorifying God. But I think also there's excitement in heaven. And, and the idea of this hymn is that let's rejoice Heaven is rejoicing in this birth. Come, you on earth, join in that way. I mean, right? Look, look, look at these joining words. It says, Joyful all ye nations rise. It's all the nations rise in joy together. Right? Come up. And it says, Join the triumph of the skies. Let's us join with heaven the triumph of what it is. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. 
The angelic host proclaimed that. Let us now proclaim that as well. And if anything, when you hear this Christmas tune this season, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think that this is an invitation for you to join the angelic realm. They're rejoicing at, at Christ being born. And so likewise, we ought to rejoice that our, our wondrous Savior has come. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. In fact, let's, let's just join that chorus. Let's just sing it together. Ready? Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to <clears throat> Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Full all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing. Re to the newborn King. You know, this hymn tune is so familiar to us, but it wasn't familiar to Charles Wesley. In fact, it wasn't even written until 100 years later. When, when Charles Wesley uh, envisioned these words, he envisioned them to be sung to the tune of the same melody as Christ the Lord is risen today. Okay? This is how Charles Wesley had it in his mind. Okay, you can't, can't leave me out here. Okay, I'm going to try to get us going here, but you need help. Um, Hark how all the welkin rings. Ah, Come on, I need help. Glory to the King of Kings. Hallelujah. Peace on earth and mercy mild. Hallelujah. God and sinners reconciled. Hallelujah. Joyful all ye nations rise. Hallelujah. Join the triumph of the skies. Hallelujah. With angelic hosts proclaim. Hallelujah. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hallelujah. That's how Charles Wesley had it in his mind. Now, we don't sing it that way today, but our, our tune still is this triumphant, right? Feel, I mean, Christ the Lord is risen today. That's, that's Easter hymn, right? That is triumphant. That is the, the glories of Christ's resurrection on Easter Sunday. And I would say that the, the glory is the same for Jesus coming and appearing on Christmas morning. The story of the tune is, is interesting. It's written by Felix Mendelssohn. In fact, you can even see it down there at the bottom. It says, Music, Felix Mendelssohn, arranged by William Cummings. Cummings is the one who merged these two things together. Mendelssohn wrote this tune, and uh, he came from a prominent Jewish, prominent Jewish family, but was baptized in the Christian faith. I'm not sure if that's authentic or he did that pragmatically for his music. Um, 
uh, career, I'm not exactly sure, because more music career, I think, is Christian faith than it would have been the Jewish faith. But here's what he said about after this melody. He said this. I am sure that peace will be liked very much by the singers and the hearers, but it will never do for sacred words. There must be a national and merry subject found out, something to which the the soldier-like and buxom motion of the piece has some relation and the words must express something gay and popular as the music tries to do. In other words, Mendelssohn saw this tune as as a reason to rejoice, some maybe national anthem or or maybe some victory celebration after some kind of military victory or, or some occasion for great joy, not for sacred music. Well, I think that's why, actually, why the words, it's a, the, the words of this song fit so well at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, right? Because it's a time of great joy, it's great triumph when George Bailey, <clears throat> who faced this financial crisis, saw the depth of his friendships, the people just willing to just give money and give money and, and loan money just at will. And as Harry said, you're the richest man in Bedford Falls. But think about it, the music, the the movie has nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing to do with Jesus and Emmanuel. Nothing to do with God coming to save us from our sins. It has to do with more humanistic perspective, the value of our own lives, which is the message of that film. But but why does it work? It works, first of all, because it's Christmas time and because the tune itself is so triumphant and so so majestic and so celebratory. And Mendelssohn didn't think the tune would be appropriate with with sacred music, but he was wrong. And maybe in his mind, maybe it was because sacred music was more somber and serious, not triumphant, as the tune suggests. But the themes even put forth in this hymn are, are triumphant. Even the first stanza says, join the triumph of the skies. Right? Join the, the victory. Right? Join how great this is with the, the welkin in the skies. And what's the triumph? The, the triumph is that the deity has come to earth. Christ, by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. This is, this, is, this is Jesus in glory before the world was. Remember his high priestly prayer, John 17? He, he spoke about God. I, I long to, 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 to be back with the glory that I had before the world was. And that my, my disciples might even see that glory. And that's the glory. Christ, by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. Christ, the sovereign over all things. Late in time, behold Him come. Offspring of the virgin womb. The King of glory of heaven has come to earth. The everlasting Lord. The one adored throughout all, all eternity came to a virgin's womb. And our only response can be worship. In fact, here's my second point. Join the chorus. Second point. Hail the Christ. Hail the Christ. As the second stanza midway through says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. It delighted Jesus to come and to dwell with us. And our only response, sorry, I pick it up from, from this tune here, it says, Hail the incarnate deity. In fact, these words bring back to mind that, those words from John chapter 1. Turn over to John chapter 1. <clears throat> Just the glories of this this. This Christ that was there with God in glory before He came and then delighted to dwell among us. In fact, if you got your hymnal also, just look, this was 276. When we think about 
a worship leader leading us into these words. It suggests there even John 1.14, the Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That, just, just bringing the great truths of John's prologue here. That, that's what the leader was to read to prompt our worship. Let, let's just read. Again, John 1. 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that he all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh nor the will of man, but were born of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word that's described here, even in verse 1, about being with God, and in fact, being God Himself, there's the mystery of the Trinity, right? One God, three persons of the God, that the, the Word was with God, the Word was God, there was a, a unity there, yet a distinctness. That, that this Word is described in verse 2 about being in the beginning with God. Verse 3 describes as being the, the Creator, the One who created all things, the One who, who created life, the One who ultimately was light. And He came to dwell among us. Please, just man with men to dwell. Verse 14, this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The idea of dwelling there is a skenosin is from which we get the Shekinah glory. The, he shakaned among us. He dwelt. He, he, he put up His residence with us. That's why the NIV says He lived with us for a while. It wasn't His permanent establishment. But He, he put His tent Right alongside of us, He lived right with us. And our only response can be, can be worship. In fact, my, my point is, hail the Christ. I showed it to you the second part of the second stanza, but look at how stanza three begins. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Hail just means worship. Let's, let's worship this heaven-born Prince of Peace. Let's worship the Son of Righteousness, right? The, the day spring, the one who's bright and, and coming. Light and life to all He brings. That is, that is John's prologue coming in there. He's bringing light. He was the true light. As verse 9 says that. Verse 4 says that in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. He, he's coming to bring life. He's coming to bring healing. He's coming to, to help Mildly lays His glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And John 1 is talking about the second birth. It's talking about the healing that comes. He, he enlightens those who come. In verse 12, as many as received Him. Right? When you receive Jesus, you become a child of God. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You want to be a child of God, then believe in his name. And again, of course, we see the sovereignty of God coming to verse 13. You come not because of your own will. It's, you're born not of blood, right? Not because your, your parents were Christians. Not, you, you, you come not because of your own will, uh, the will of the flesh, which your own desire. You don't, you don't come because of, of the will of man or other people. You come because of God, because God's the one that borns us again. He initiates salvation, bringing Christ into the world. He borns us again as we receive and we are children of God. And that's, that's what this hymn is talking about, right? Born to give them second birth. He, he was born so he might give us a different birth, a second birth, by believing in Christ, being changed as a new creature. And that's what Christmas is all about. It's not just merely reflecting upon Jesus. It's about worshiping this one as, as risen new creatures in Christ, worshiping the Lord. See, when the wise men came from the east, they came to worship. Matthew 2, 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east. We've come to worship him. Hail the Christ. The fact that God is with us is enough. I want, I want to close my message this morning by a visit to uh, the deathbed of Charles Wesley's brother John. Oh, how I wish in my study this week that this was Charles Wesley, but it was John Wesley. He didn't write this, but he was close relationship enough. March 2nd, 1791. John Wesley, um, 88 years old. His family and friends all gathered around him. He's saying his last goodbyes to everybody. And here's how his housekeeper Betsy Ritchie described the scene. Quote, Some of those who were most used to hearing our dear father's dying voice would be able to interpret his meaning. But though he strove to speak, we were still unsuccessful. In other words, he was so weak and so tired. He was trying to speak, but nobody around him could understand what John Wesley was saying as he was dying. Finding we could not understand what he said, he paused a little. And then with all the remaining strength he had, he cried out, The best of all is, God is with us. He probably didn't say it that loud. He's a dying man. And then, as if to assert the faithfulness of our promise-keeping Jehovah and comfort the hearts of his weeping friends, lifting up his dying arm in token of the victory and raising his feeble voice with a holy triumph not to be expressed again, not to be expressed, again repeated the heart-reviving words, best of all, God is with us. It's the last thing John Wesley said, and it, it so encapsulates Christmas, right? The best of all, that God is with us. So I just encourage you this Christmas season, hear this song, join the chorus of the welkin, and hail the Christ and worship Him as did both Wesley brothers who came to faith and trusted Him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would be a, a sweetness to our souls. I pray that indeed this would be the, the truth that would ring in our hearts. The best of all is God is with us. As the best, the Savior has come. That You have chosen to come to redeem us, to be with us. Thank You for what You've done. You've come to, to redeem us, to save us, to purify people for Your own possession. God, we might glorify You and extend Your glory. 
So, Father, I pray that you would help us this Christmas season to, to just grasp these hymns and to love them and see how, how they accord. Luke chapter 2, John chapter 1 is all over this hymn. And I pray that these truths would sink deep into our hearts and into our minds. That we'd be those who would indeed join the angelic chorus and that we would hail the Christ. He's worthy of all of our praise. God, stir our hearts again as we reflect upon the, uh, the melody of this song, the words of this song, and how it rings these truths to us. In Jesus' name, amen.